There is no doubt that what we've seen over the last couple of weeks out in the streets is in part the result of poor leadership in law enforcement. There is a vacuum. Our guest today is going to help us navigate how to pull ourselves out of it and become better individual leaders. Stay with us. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bearcat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody that's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Squad Room, where I help you learn the tactics and strategies and the mindset for having a successful career and a successful life in our very, very challenging career, especially these days. My name is Garrett Tesla, and I'm on a mission to build a world where first responders wake up inspired, feel confident at work, and go home knowing they've spent their time in a worthy cause. We have a great episode today, but before we get to our guest, I want to remind you that you can support the show and rock some cool gear by visiting our apparel line at aworthycauselife.com. Or just go to thesquadroom.net and hit shop. I've been wanting to add a shop to the podcast for a long, long time. But I wanted it to be just uh, something bigger than just a t-shirt with our logo on it. Although those are coming as well. I wanted a brand that celebrated all the first responder professions. With some fun and motivating apparel, stickers, coffee mugs, etc. So check it out at aworthycauselife.com. Or on Instagram at aworthycauselife. Or on Facebook. There are also other couple ways you can stay connected with the podcast and make sure that you're getting as much value out of these episodes as possible. First, join our Facebook group of active and aspiring law enforcement professionals. Just search the Squad Room group on Facebook to join and answer two very simple, very quick questions. Also, of course, follow us on Instagram at the Squad Room and join our mailing list. Go to thesquadroom.net and join the mailing list. A lot of new content is going to be distributed through the mailing list, so you don't want to miss out. Also, several companies who support the show uh, support us as well. Uh, go to thesquadroom.net forward slash support to see exclusive deals from Signature Coins, Hard to Kill Fitness, Onnit, Ranger Up, Hardhead Veterans, and Audible. All right, my guest today is Jason Van Camp. Jason retired out of Special Forces, meaning the Green Berets, retired out of the Special Forces as a major. And uh, he is the author of a fantastic leadership book called Deliberate Discomfort. And uh, it's truly uh, one of the books that uh, one of the best leadership books I've read in recent memory. And I like how it's divided out. And to give you a little peek, uh, he runs an organization now, a leadership consultant organization called uh, Mission Six Zero. And he has his buddies from Special Forces, some who are Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, he they write a chapter about some experience they had in the war, and then he translates that into civilian leadership. And the stories are amazing, and they're harrowing, and they're heart pounding. But the leadership lessons in each are fantastic as well. It really was a great book. 
Um, was really honored to have him on the show, <clears throat> and we had a great conversation. In this episode, we talk about uh, the ideas of where does your confidence come from, and what can cops learn from special forces. If you've heard me talk with the other Green Berets I've had on the show, I really feel like there is a direct parallel between what special forces tries to accomplish and what we try to accomplish. Not in the warrior fighter sense, but in the um, what they call village stability operations. I see we need to translate that into our neighborhood stability operations, right? And the idea that the Green Berets go in and train indigenous forces to defend themselves, I think, is the way forward for law enforcement uh, in our current climate. We need to go in with a partnership mentality and train and and I don't mean train by teach everybody firearms, but embolden communities to take their own public safety as seriously as we feel they need to. So we talk about that. We talk about getting buy-in from the people above and below you and the importance of reminding others that they're valuable. Right now, uh, you know, it's funny because I recorded this episode before all of the unrest. And uh, this, this episode has been sitting in my hard drive for many weeks uh, while I kind of trickle out the releases, a little behind the scenes uh, info for you. I usually record five, six, seven episodes at a time, and then we'll just drip them out uh, over time because it's a lot more efficient. So anyway, this this episode has been sitting for a long time. And as I listened to it, as I started to prep releasing it, so many of the lessons that we talk about prior to all the unrest as a result of Minneapolis apply even more now, just, just a couple of weeks later. The importance of reminding your people that they're valuable. How, how That's not a woo-woo concept, and it's such a, an important part for anyone to acknowledge. Uh, building trust with your teams. We talk about that. We talk about the importance of allowing for mistakes and uh, how coaches and mentors can help and shape you and navigate you and how you constantly need to be seeking coaches. So uh, it's a great episode, and uh, like I said, it was recorded before all of this. Speaking of that, this is the first episode that's been released since this really uh, kicked off. I released the Kevin Gilmartin episode kind of the week of because that was appropriate for a lot of the kind of um, stress and the immediate stress of something like this that caused during a riot. But I haven't addressed the issues surrounding Minneapolis directly. And I'm not going to do that here intentionally. And the reason I'm not going to do that here is because in an intro, as you're waiting to get to the uh, guest, A, a lot of people are going to fast forward through it. (laughs) But B, it's also out of place at a time. And I want to be very deliberate in how I approach it. I want to be very deliberate in the language I use. As Sam Harris has said, conversation has been weaponized as a result of what is going on. And so like any of you who have any platform and who have a social media policy and have these other concerns, including safety for your family, I want to make sure I have my thoughts fully fleshed out, but also that I'm speaking authentically, but also in a manner that doesn't compromise anything. So that will come. It will come. And what I'm focused on in any of this, as I'm always focused on, is what can we do as individuals to to change the course, if the course, in fact, needs to be changed. And hint, in this case, it does. 
but uh, no grandiose statements about how um, I'm going to solve it all. Just some thoughts. And that's coming. So look for that briefing topic episode very shortly. So just a quick word of thanks to our sponsor right now, and then we'll get to Jason Van Camp, author of Deliberate Discomfort. Fantastic books. Please stay with us. This is going to be a great episode. This episode is sponsored by Signature Coins. For months now, I've been looking for a way to say thank you to my guests and supporters. And after being involved in a major international incident recently, I was given quite a few challenge coins, and I was surprised at how much each of those meant to me. So I decided to make a squad room challenge coin to share with guests and supporters. I went searching for a company who could meet my high standards, but I was still nervous about making a purchase like this online. Most challenge coins you order these days are ordered online, produced in a factory far, far away, and tracking down someone in customer service can be, well, a challenge. And I'll admit that I'm kind of old school, and I prefer to look someone in the eye when I'm about to spend that much money. So I delayed on a decision on a vendor for a long time until I found Signature Coins out of Florida. Turns out, some of the guys at Signature Coins actually listened to the show. And when I contacted them, we connected immediately on our shared purpose of honoring this profession that I love so much. Daniel, Trey, Jeff, and all the other guys at Signature immediately put me at ease with making such a big purchase, and they bent over backwards to make sure that the coin I wanted that was in my head came out as a reality that I'm now holding in my hand. Now, if you're like me and you haven't drawn anything since it involved a crayon, have no fear. Signature Coins has 30 graphic artists on staff right in their Orlando office to help, and they don't charge a single penny to get your artwork ready for production. That is a big difference from other companies that often charge an artwork fee, or maybe you have to hire an outside designer. Signature Coins does all the art for free with no obligation to buy. They also have inclusive pricing, meaning that you're not going to get hit with a hidden upcharge at checkout, a 100% guarantee on their craftsmanship, and free next day shipping in the U.S., and their customer service team is right there in Orlando. Their turnaround is quick, about two weeks, which is super fast for coins, and like I said, free next day shipping when your coins are ready to go out the door. I couldn't be happier with my coins, and I couldn't be happier that I got them from Signature Coins. If you're looking to make a challenge coin of your own, you can find out more about them at SignatureCoins.com or email info at SignatureCoins.com, and Jeff will hook you up with a quote. If you use the coupon code the squad room, you'll get $50 off your first order. Learn more at signaturecoins.com. Jason Van Camp, welcome to the squad room. Uh, author of Deliberate Discomfort, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm honored to be invited. This is uh this is absolute pleasure. I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So I, I gave you the title for the listeners that I gave part of the title. I, I should give the full deliberate discomfort, how U.S. special operations forces overcome fear and dare to win by getting uncomfortable, by getting comfortable being uncomfortable. That's um, right. And so I'll show you my, you showed me yours. I'll show you mine. It's got all these tabs on it. That's how I read. I don't highlight. I use these little tabs and your book is ah. completely tabbed up. So yes, that's always a good sign that I enjoyed a book. <laughs> And good, good. Let's dig into it, man. I yeah. love the, I love it when somebody's done the research and like, you know, I've read the book. Let's talk about it. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank gonna, you. you know, so um, one of the things that's been kind of unique <laughs> about the show is I've ended up, I've actually had a lot of Green Berets on. And uh, one of my mentors, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, uh, was, uh, was in for 22 years in Special Forces. We just had uh, an officer who's an officer in California now, but he was... Uh, 19th group and did multiple tours, Aaron Baruga from first group. So 
I, I gravitate just for, this is for your own knowledge and edification because the, the audience has heard this before. I gravitate towards what we can learn specifically from special forces, meaning the Green Berets, because I see so many similarities to what you try to accomplish uh, internationally and externally. That is very much the job of a law enforcement officer internally within the country. And so I, I'm given the given away the fact that you're a Green Beret here, um, but wanted to get your thoughts on that dynamic if you've ever thought of the comparison between the two, and then give you a second to give your bio on, on how you got to where you're at. Sure. So the question is, how are first responders, the police, similar to the Green Berets? Is that Yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, we, we obviously, I think as a, as a paramilitary organization, we often mimic uh, military organizations in terms of structure and command and, you know, uh, command and control, that sort of stuff. But we often look towards uh, special operations specifically for like the tips, the tactics, the strategies they use uh, on an individual basis on how to be successful. You know, this, I mean, the Navy SEALs get so much attention about the never quit mindset, that sort of thing. But what I see from the Green Berets is, is more of that cerebral approach that is required of an officer who's on the street. You know, you have to be a negotiator. You have to be a bridge builder. You have to be able to work with these varying groups of people. And you have to be tactically proficient. Um, so it's, I just that's, that commonality strikes me very much. Good. I'm glad that it does. And you're right. You know, like there's different types of military units and, and some are the door kickers. You know, the Navy SEALs certainly are door kickers. And as a Green Beret, we've been trained to kick indoors too. But that's not really kind of what we're known for. We're the quiet professionals. You know, like we, I describe to people, civilians, like my wife, for example, she's like, well, what do you do exactly? And, you know, and, and I told her, you know, you go, like, let's say you're in the U.S. Army Infantry. That's kind of like graduating from, uh, from high school. And then you can become a ranger. It's sort of like graduating from college. Going to the Green Berets is sort of like getting your master's degree. And then Delta Force would probably be like your PhD. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of how it would look in in um, in the Army. Now, as Green Berets, we conduct and we are masters of unconventional warfare. And so what we pride ourselves on is not um, teaching people what to think, but teaching people how to think. Because you can't have a simple go-to solution for every scenario like but we can teach you how to identify assess and overcome you know uh throughout our training and it's about two and a half year pipeline you know and so when we went overseas to combat we go as a 12-man team we don't go as a conventional unit with hundreds and hundreds thousands of people we don't we go with 12 guys and we're placed in like in an austere environment a very nebulous ambiguous very little information and we have to find a place to live right befriend locals whether it's you know the police or the army or just some indige forces or whatever they might be befriend them to the point where you can train them to do the work for you so instead of me kicking down a door well i've got a group of 600 for example kurdish peshmerga soldiers that I befriended and trained up over the last four months, and they're going to kick the door down for me, and I'm going to walk in after they're done clearing the house, which we've trained them to do. you know. And, and that's kind of how we operate in the Green Berets, and I see a lot of the elite police departments, uh, you know, first responders doing the same thing. You're out on the streets. You know, you're trying to befriend locals. You're trying to 
create a bond, uh, some rapport with them. You're speaking their language, you know, like I'm fluent in Russian. You don't really see that in other, uh, you know, military units, but when you're on the streets, you got to speak their language and you have to uh, convince them to work with you in some capacity for their benefit. So, I mean, there's so many similarities, but that's what, without being long winded, that's what I would tell you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, I mean, we mentioned your special forces, but you didn't start there. Um, you started in the more conventional units and then you decided at some point in your career to transition into that elite level. And I was hoping you could share some of the thought process that you went through on that decision, because I think that's informative for people when you realize that there's nothing wrong with what you've done or what you did, but you, ha you have something bigger you want to accomplish, or there's something meant for you that's more than what you currently have. And what was that process like for you? And, and how did you finally, you know, convince yourself that you needed to do this? I think I've always had a very strong drive inside of me to, to see what I'm capable of, mm. you know, to kind of push my limits and to be better, be stronger. Um, and I went to West Point and I hated every second of it, you know, and looking back on it, like people say, it's a great place to be from, but not a great place to be at. And I, I couldn't agree with them more. Like I still look at West Point. I still haven't quite forgiven them or myself. <laughs> my experiences there. I'm, I, hopefully I'll get there soon. But it was a tough experience for me. But it was learning. I commissioned as a lieutenant. And I didn't know what branch to go in the military. Most of the Army football players, I played football at West Point. Most of the Army football players were going field artillery. And so I said, well, it seems like those are my people. Those are good guys. I can hang out with these guys, you know, like. I'm going field artillery. And so I went field artillery and I quickly realized that the army, the, the regular army was amazing. Like I, I loved it. I, it was the opposite of my experience at West Point. And one day during our officer basic course, one of my best friends, Andy Reese, who is an army football player, who's actually uh, my chief science officer at my company, Mission Six Zero, right now. He, uh, he's like, Jason, uh, there's a, a brief after class this evening, a, a ranger is going to come talk to us and they're going to do some pre-ranger physical training in the morning and, and the guys that make it get to go to ranger school. And I was kind of like, okay, cool, man. And he's like, well, I'm going to go. I'm like, what, you're going to go? Like, you're, you're not going to make it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, he's like, no, I'm doing it, man. I'm doing it. I'm going. He's like, you should go too. We can do it together, you know? And I was like, man, like, please don't tell me this because if you're going to do it, then I... I have to do it. Like I can't just let you do it and me not do it, man. I, I've, I'm too competitive. I'm, I'm, I consider you too much of a friend. I don't know if I can live my, with myself. If you're a ranger and I'm not, I, are you sure you want to do this? He's like, yeah, I'm sure, man. Let's do it. So the next morning at 4 a.m., I showed up at, at uh, the PT formation for pre-ranger training. There was 100 guys from the, from the class there. And uh, of those 100 guys, not one of them was named Andy Reese. And so I was just like, this dude, you know, we call we call him something in the military, a, a buddy effer. I'm not going to say it on your podcast, <laughs> you know, and I was looking around just like pissed off, man. I was like, you got to be this guy convinced me he's not here. So they smoke us for two and a half hours or so, just physical destruction. And we get I get back to the barracks and, and I knock on Andy's door and I'm just like, hey, bud where were you? And he shows up in his boxers, his eyes are crusted over with sleep. And he's like, bro, 
like 4 a.m. came super early. I, I couldn't do it, man. Like it was just too early. And I'm like, well, now I'm stuck in this thing for the next four months. Like I, I've got to go. I can't quit. He's like, I'm sorry, man. Good luck. And so the next thing you know, after four months, I'm, uh, I'm one of 12 guys that remain. And of those 12 guys that go to ranger school, uh, I'm, I'm one of three that graduated. And so I was really proud of that moment. Uh, and that's kind of how it started for me where I was like, you know what? Like ranger school is awesome. Like I got a chance to put myself through something very, very difficult, you know, and I came out the other end on top and I saw how much I improved. I matured mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally, like professionally. Like I was a better product at the end of this course. And I started to ask myself, well, if I did this, I wonder if I could do that. And if I could do that, then maybe I could do that. And the next thing you know, I'm trying out for special forces. I'm in the selection program. I loved every second of it. That was my favorite course. And then I go to uh, the qualification course and it was amazing. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, I'm a Green Beret. And that's kind of how it worked out for me. Just I had to have someone kind of challenge me or convince me or motivate me or just kind of present an adventure, a journey in front of me. And once I saw that, I took it. And, um, and for me, it wasn't about like the trophies. It wasn't about, oh, I get a Green Beret. It was about the people. It was about the journey that I was taking with those people and to be able to celebrate with them at the end and see their smiling faces and see them laugh and see them like celebrate together as a team. That's, that's really what, what it was all about for me. That's what spoke to my heart. And that's why I did what I did. Where did that, that confidence come from that you felt like you, sh you were at least in the arena or in, in contention immediately? And I have to think it comes from playing football at a high level. Uh, but going further back than just playing football at West Point, even, uh, even applying to West Point is one of those things where you have to feel like you're, you're credible and confident and, and competent to throw your hat in at what age do you remember an age where you started to feel that sort of sense about yourself yeah i'm gonna take it way back to like preschool days and i'll tell you my confidence came from one person uh, from my mother she believed in me and i believed in her and that's the only reason why i am who i am today you know there were times when i would tell my mom I want to do this or that. And she would say, no, you're going to take it a step higher. And she kind of forced me to believe and forced me to do things that were harder than I was really willing to do. You know, like if, um, I remember they made all the kindergarten, kindergarten kids like star in this play. And like, I was like a snake in the play or something. And my mother complained to the teacher and she's like, Jason should be the star. He needs to be the, the prince of the play. And she made a huge deal out of it. And I was totally embarrassed, even as a young kid. But I saw like what she what she saw in me and what she wanted me to do. Uh, my dad, he was kind of like the, the, the tough guy. He was like the negative reinforcement. You know, he was like really hard on me. And if I didn't do something well, he'd be like, you know, he'd shake his head and be like, you know, like. You know, it's, that's not good or, you know, that's embarrassing or whatever. And, and that would motivate me in a, in, a, in a negative reinforcement sort of way. But the positive reinforcement I got from my mother, the belief that she had in me, the belief that I had in her is really kind of what 
created this confidence in me. And it starts with your parents, you know, and, and I think for most people, it starts with your mom. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how that connects to some of the stories in your book and how it starts with positive motivation. And you have these people who enter the story at varying parts, uh, you know, especially your, your boss, your first boss in Special Forces, Major Pettit, um, yeah. and how everything from that position was, was positive reinforcement. And I wanted to jump into that because I think the, I think the book is really great. I really do. And I like how it's laid out. Um, you have a story from either your experience or the experience of somebody you served with, uh, and a, a story that they have from combat or from their time in service. And then it's, and it's almost always like nail biting edge of your seat, like page turner. <laughs> Some of those are just unbelievable. And thank you. Um, and then you have a section on the science behind the dynamic or the thought or the psychology that went into what happened in that story. That's and right. then you have a third section about a practical application to that, typically in, in, in a business setting or in a leadership setting in the civilian world. And I really like how that was laid out because you took something that can be so um, distant and, and foreign uh, concept to many people and you translated it into something that you can see in your everyday life. So really got it. And, and by, I think the first, the first chapter really hit me and really spoke to me and got me all fired up and motivated to go out and, nice. and be a better leader because you tell the story of, of, you know, checking in at, at your first, uh, at your first group and, in Fort Carson and you meet, uh, who I just mentioned, major Brian Pettit. And what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, you, you have this image of military officers in your head sometimes that's not always accurate, just like you do with command staff at a police department or a sheriff's office. And he tells you one thing that I just totally threw me when I'm reading it, and that he told you he, you were valued, you know, and that you were a valuable member of the team. You're here, the brand new guy. He hasn't, you haven't passed any of his tests yet. You haven't, other than, you know, selection to get there, but he, you, within minutes of meeting you, he tells you this. And I want to see how you feel. I wanted to talk about building trust in that way then with subordinates and superiors and how building trust starts with letting people know that they're valued. Can you share that? Yeah, that's brilliant. So that's the first thing that he says to me. He said, let me, like I sit down in his office and he said, let me start by telling you that anybody who steps through that door and is a qualified Green Beret, I value. I want you to know that you are valuable and I value you. And so immediately, like my defense, usually you sit down for the first time, your guard's up, man. Like, what am I going to expect? I don't want to be hit in the face. Like, right. immediately when someone tells you, hey, I'm your boss and you're special, I value you. And I don't even know you, but I would need you to know this. I need you to understand you're valuable. Okay, you, you basically got my buy-in. Okay, what do you want me to do, sir? Like, if you feel that way about me, if you think that I can add value and I am valuable, okay, how do I show you? What can I do for you at this point? And so that was an unbelievable, uh, you know, lesson, you know, to say whenever I'm in charge from here on out, whenever I bring in new employees to Warrior Rising or Mission Six Zero, that's the first thing I tell them. I said, listen, you know, I don't know you very well yet. You know, I've read your resume, I've my background, and I want you to know like, you coming on to this team. Thank you. I appreciate you. You're valuable, and I value you. And if you ever don't feel like that, I need you to tell me because I'm doing the wrong thing as a leader. 
What do you think? So uh, that's uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'll keep going, man. I can <laughs> keep going on and on. I gotta, I gotta tell myself to stop talking. You well, know? This, this is a long form. It's a long form podcast, so we're all good uh, because I, I really oh. think there is such a hang up because when you say to someone else, especially someone you just met, that you're valuable, there is an impression that you are. Uh, either being emotional or you're showing some sort of vulnerability by admitting that there's someone else who brings value to the table. And so I think that it's wow. a struggle for a lot of leaders to to get those words out of their mouth. And they may believe it, right? But to say it, I think, is such a big deal. And, and we all have that boss or that coworker who it's like, oh, they really like you because they don't, you know, they don't talk to you, but they grunt, so they must like you. Or, uh, yeah. Or uh, we know that he likes you because you didn't get a bad employee rating this year. Whatever it is. But to go proactively and, and to say the importance of so, uh, anyone who shows up through that door, I just thought was was a wonderful way to start a relationship, but also to start building trust. Because, as you just said, you get, they get your buy-in. And then you can start building trust both ways, right? And so what are the things that you, as, as a leader also, and, uh, you know, what are the things that you would do or that you took from that that you would use to build trust with your teams, with your subordinates? Yeah, another great question. So I fully agree with you that by telling someone that they're valued and valuable, you're being vulnerable yourself. You know, you're saying like, I don't have all the answers and I need you to help me. Okay, fantastic. That's, in my opinion, that's how you should run things. Now, the next question, you know, it, it's what I've taken from this. I've taken all of this. I, I basically try to emulate chapter one in the book whenever I sit down with, with a new employee. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, a lot of times our clients will come to me and they'll say, Jason, you know, I started my business. I'm passionate about it. I work, I work my ass off for this. I stay up late at night. I just want this thing to succeed. I do everything I possibly can for it. I want my employees to feel the same way. I want them to buy into my business as much as I'm bought into it. How do I do that? And the answer is simple. And, you know, Brian Pettit tells me, it's like, in order for you to get buy-in, you have to buy into them first. And that kind of blows people's minds. They're like, well, wow, I have to put forth effort into them. And, you got to find out what motivates them, what's their purpose, what they are getting excited about. I'll tell you a really quick story. It's it's a it's a personal story. A friend of mine, Cameron, uh, he's a great great guy. Five years ago, I got married, and uh, I was asking all my friends, "Hey, you got any advice? Get married for the first time?" And they would give me advice, and, and I asked Cameron, and he's like, uh, "Jason, marriage is easy. Piece of cake. Here's what you got to do." And I listened to him and applied his advice, you know, and five years later, Cameron and I hang out all the time. And recently, a few months ago, he's, he's having lunch with me and, uh, he's looking a little down and I was like, Hey man, what's up? How, how is everything? And he said, well, Jason, not good. I'm, I'm getting a divorce. And I was like, wow, man, I'm shocked. I, I'm floored. As a matter of fact, I, I thought you and your wife were a perfect couple. You know, I thought you guys were doing great. You got four kids, you know, and been married for 15 years. And he said, I walked into my house a few days ago. Um, kids were playing around. Wife was in the kitchen. I walked in, I asked what was for dinner. And she matter of factly told me, I'm leaving you. This is over. 
and uh, I've been cheating on you for well over a year and I'm moving in with this guy. Goodbye. And he didn't know what to say at first. He was just in shock and he noticed that she had bags packed by the door. She picked her bags and she was walking out the door and he just started panicking and just started saying, stay, we've got kids. Like, I'll, I'll go to counseling with you. I'll do whatever. Please just stay with me. You know, please, I'm begging you. And she didn't listen to him and he kind of followed her out the door to the car and Finally, she turned around and she's like, okay, listen, all right, Cameron, I'll give you one chance, one shot. I'll stay with you if you can tell me one thing. What's my dream? What's my vision? What have, what have I always wanted to do with my life? If you can tell me that right now, I'll stay. And he just looked at her and he shrugged his shoulders. He's like, I, I don't know. And so she got her bags in the car and took off and left. And uh, Cameron and I were having lunch and he, and he said, Jason, remember when I told you marriage was easy? And I was like, yeah, man, I do remember that. And he's like, well, it was easy for me, but it wasn't easy for her. And I think about that and I think, you know, like how often do we focus on our own goals and what we want to accomplish rather than on what your wife or your spouse wants to accomplish, what their goals and visions are, what your employees' goals and visions are. And, uh, you know, in chapter nine of the book, we talk about a company that said, we need to invest more in our people. If we can find out what they want to accomplish personally and can empower them to do that, then we're going to have happier, more engaged, more productive employees at our company. And that's exactly what they did. So to get buy-in, you have to give buy-in. And one way to do that is by finding out, asking questions about your employee, what do they want to accomplish? What are they getting out of this? And if you can figure that out, you're going to have employees that are 100% bought into not only the company, but bought into you. You know, I think another element that you touched on right in the book as well and explored that is goes hand in hand with the value of someone coming in is also acknowledging the importance of allowing for mistakes, right? Yeah. And, and, and acknowledging that mistakes will happen and mistakes are okay within certain parameters but that they're expected because they show that the person is putting forth some effort and you got supported and you, you were given clear guidelines about what mistakes were okay. And I, I thought you could share that, but also then how in running, you, you know, your own teams and then in your private business now, how do you allow for mistakes without um, appearing or looking or actually being um, uh, uh Lack, lacking in direction or command of the group. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. That's something that was very prevalent when I was on a team as well, because when we're on a 12-man ODA and I'm the commander, like these type A personalities, these guys that have been highly trained, that know their specific, you know, MOSs and their, their jobs, essentially, like I couldn't uh, create a team atmosphere where – I'm the central hub. I'm, I'm the command and control element of, of everything. I've got to give these guys autonomy. I've got to let them do their job. I can't put a collar and leash on them and just give them, you know, a few inches to run around. That's not how it works. That's not what they would appreciate. So I would teach them correct principles. I would try to be as, as clear as possible up front, ask as, you know, answer as many questions as possible, do a check on learning with them to make sure they understood what I wanted and then I would trust them to get the job done. 
Now, understanding that that's how I led and that's what was taught to me uh, as an effective commander, you know, Brian Pettis says, um, you're going to make mistakes and mistakes are okay as long as they're aggressive mistakes. And that was something that I heard a lot when I played football. You know, my, my coaches would say, hey, listen, you know, you, you're not going to be perfect, but as long as you're being aggressive, you know, we can we can tolerate that. And Major Pettit said, you know, if like you're making these aggressive mistakes, it shows me that you're willing to take risks. And it impresses me because you're willing to stretch out. You're willing to push your boundaries. You're willing to get uncomfortable. And, and you can't, like, let's be honest, you can't run an organization that has zero mistakes. You can't do it. And Major Pettit said, listen, I'll, I'll be lenient with you. And I expect you to be lenient with your men. Okay. All mistakes aren't equal. Right. And, and what he said was, um, if you're avoiding mistakes, like being unprepared, so just showing up and not knowing what's going on, he's like, I'm not going to tolerate it. You know, if you focus on personal gain, like how is this going to advance my career? Am, am I going to get promoted because of this? Or um, sometimes like you could make money doing side projects or things like that or, you know, whatever personal gain might be for you. Like if you're doing that, you're wrong. Uh, if you have any malintent. You know, if you're if you're jealous, if you're trying to get revenge on someone, if, if you have evil thoughts, like I'm not going to tolerate that. And he said, finally, I'm not going to tolerate you being sloppy, you know, negligent, lazy or stupid. And if you're focusing on three things, really fighting, surviving and winning in this environment, I will let those things slide, you know, and, and that just gave me more confidence to know, like, OK, like I don't. I'm not expected to be perfect. I'm okay. If these things happen, then I'll be honest and truthful to the, to the commander and tell me this is what happened and this is why I take full responsibility, full accountability for it. I know that he'll forgive me and he'll give me another chance. And, uh, and that not only allowed me to get more confident, but it also continued the buy-in of my commander, you know? So I think then the natural progression of that same of the next question from that is okay you you've been told you're valued so you're given buy-in yeah. which means you're given some courage to go out and try things you've been told mistakes are okay within certain parameters the aggressive mistakes but that invariably means that like you just said there's no such thing as as a perfect organization or a perfect performance mistakes happen the next biggest challenge i th see for anybody in any sort of situation where they're in a leadership not even a leadership position, but a supervisory position, is an unwillingness to admit mistakes. So you get to make them, but you also have to be willing to admit to them, right? And and the special operations, just like law enforcement, are well known for the hot wash or debrief. Um, mm -hmm. And Green Berets are known for their very direct and very uh, detailed and honest uh, self-assessments and assessments of their teammates. But how do you, as the guy in charge, Make sure that you stay open to the constructive criticisms because they're going to come, right? I mean, they're guaranteed. Yeah, and I, I don't think you should take constructive criticisms from everybody in your organization, just leaders that you trust, um, sort of like in your inner circle sort of thing. And so what I always did was of those inner circle guys, usually high-ranking NCOs for me, right off the bat, day one, I just be vulnerable with them and say, listen, I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect. Here is what I am. 
I'm going to bust my ass for you guys. I've got a big heart. Like I care. I care about my soldiers, care about my people. I've got a big work ethic. Like I'm going to dominate PT. I'm going to dominate like briefs. I'm going to dominate presentations. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to get the work done. That's just who I am. And I've got big balls. And that means I'm going to take risks. You know, that's who I am. Like I'm a risk taker. And I want you to tell me at any point, like we'll, we'll throw the rank aside. Like you have carte blanche to come to me personally. You know, and this doesn't mean like in a crowded room or in front of the team, but this means come to me personally afterwards. If I'm doing something stupid or going down the wrong route or doing something that doesn't make any sense, I give you full permission to come up to me and tell me, sir, you're being a dumbass. You know, like, don't do this. I don't understand why you're doing this. And this goes both ways. I can do this to you as well. And as long as we have that relationship, like, we're going to be okay. And I've always done that, like, on day one, right off the bat with my guys, my inner circle guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and as long as we're on the same page with that, um, things generally went pretty well. And there were plenty of times when my guys would come to me like, sir, what are you doing? Like, I don't understand like this at all. Mm-hmm. And other, sometimes I'd be like, well, we're doing it because of this. And I'd convince them. And other times I'd sit down, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let's, let's not do that. You know what I mean? Like it just made sense to me in my mind initially. And then after we talked it through, it was like, nah, not a good idea. You know, every time I've had the opportunity to have a, a relationship or um, a conversation with that, with the people I'm in, uh, quote unquote, in charge of, I've always found that it increases that level of trust again, because regardless of what a new leader thinks people expect of them, everybody around you knows that you're not going to know at all. Right. right. And in, and in your environment and our environment, there is no way to know it all at any given moment and be able to pick any of those things up at the, at the snap of some fingers. And so I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of people, but Oftentimes a new leader thinks I need to know everything and I need to show no weakness and I need to show no acknowledgement that I don't know the answer. And really that's just a mask they're putting on. Everybody else knows the game of charade that's going on and you actually lose credibility and lose trust with your people rather than coming forward and being vulnerable and saying, you know what? I don't know everything. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And guys that think they're Superman or Captain America, (laughs) they, they 100% never are. Because you can't live up to those superheroes and those expectations. You know, you can only live up to who you are. And that comes from an honest self-awareness and self-assessment. And honestly, your self-assessment generally isn't the most accurate. So that's why you need a mentor, uh, somebody that you trust, an instructor to tell me this is who you are. This is who, what you're good at and what you're not good at. You know, and, and if you can listen to somebody like that, that you trust, that has your back, it's loyal to you, you'll be successful. In ancient Rome, soldiers would step into battle to fight for the empire, but they also had bills to pay and family back home to support. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, if soldiers performed well in battle, they would be paid in gold coins. If they performed with exceptional valor, they would be given an extra coin. Legend has it that this coin was often minted with the name and symbol of the legion in which they served, and that soldiers would hold on to these coins as proof of their bravery. This made their coins a prized possession. Throughout history, unique coins have been part of nearly every warrior tradition. 
There's a story from World War One in which an American pilot was held captive as a German POW and stripped of all of his personal identification. He escaped the POW camp but was detained by the French who thought he was a German spy. He carried with him a coin with a symbol that one of the French soldiers recognized as that of an American squadron. The coin saved his life. Challenge coins remain an important part of this warrior tradition, including those in law enforcement and the other first responder professions. Signature Coins out of Orlando, Florida is my choice for challenge coins for the squad room. Their staff of artists can create and make most any design a reality, and their quality is top-notch. The people at Signature Coins are complete professionals like you, and they take their jobs seriously. Quality is their priority, and I can tell you that it shows in the squad room coins that I ordered from them. You can check out their handiwork on my Instagram at the squad room. For more information or to get a free quote with no artwork fee, check out their website at signaturecoins.com. If you use the coupon code the squad room, you can get $50 off your first order. That's signaturecoins.com. Now, back to the show. That's a perfect transition to the next area I want to cover, which is mentors and, and having coach relationships. You know, yeah. um, obviously Major Pettit was a big one for you. You played high school, uh, you played college football at West Point and growing up. So one thing that stuck out to me was you've had a coach relationship with somebody uh, growing since early on growing up and yeah. quite strong characters too, right? And I wonder now, after you've transitioned out of the military, you are now leading a new company you're an entrepreneur. You've got all these experiences. Are coaches and mentors still important to you at this stage in your life? And if they are, what are the one kinds that you're seeking out? Okay. So great question. 100% they are important to me right now, perhaps more than ever, because I've, I'm juggling so many different things. And uh, my nonprofit, Warrior Rising, we help veterans start their own businesses. And I'm a mentor to a number of these veterans. And it's so clear to me when I talk with them what they should be doing. You know, and, and it's hard for them as entrepreneurs, as leaders, to kind of see the forest through the trees, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as an entrepreneur, as a leader myself at Warrior Rising and Mission Six Zero, it's not nearly as easy for me to give myself this advice. Like it's, I find myself acting the same way as the guys I'm mentoring. Like, man, like I could go this way. I could go this way. What should I do? And I'm not seeing the forest through the trees either. And it's just, it's, it's a natural, it's a natural thing when you're in charge and you see all the options, it's hard for you to take a step back and like see it from a different perspective. And so I constantly reach out to the mentors that I trust and, and I ask them for guidance, for assistance and, you know, all, although I trust all of them and they have great advice and they have phenomenal backgrounds, you ask a hundred mentors, uh, their advice and you're going to get a hundred different answers. And so what you got to do is just take all that information, process it, digest it, marinate on it, feel, if you want to pray about it, pray about it, feel good about something. And then just kind of trust your gut, trust your gut in which direction you want to go. Uh, the mentors that I have now or the mentors that I had in my past, they were all older people, men and women that had been there, done that. And I find that the mentors I have now are, are generally peers. Um, they're not that much older than me and perhaps some of them are, are younger than me, but they still have different life experiences. Um, and they've been successful at whatever they've chosen to do in life. And, um, and I just ask their opinion cause I, I'd love to hear it. 
How, how do you find those people? Is it just where you live or do you reach out on social media? Is it through the clients you meet in your organization? How do you do that? Because I think a lot of us would love to have a stronger mentor relationship, uh, but you know, formal programs don't work at most agencies and your life becomes revolved around going to work and all of a sudden you realize you don't have connections like that. How do we build those? So mentorship isn't for everyone. And they're good mentors and bad mentors. And what I've found is the mentors that are really successful and really good at what they do is one, they reach out to you, they volunteer their time and their, uh, their intelligence, and they get service. They get that, you know, I needed mentorship when I was going through whatever I was going through to become successful. And now it's my turn to give back. Mm. You know, and, and they feel obligated to do so. And those are the best mentors. Uh, the guys that have a million different things going on, they're juggling their family and three or four businesses and they're financially struggling. You know, they don't have the time to be good mentors. You know, guys that have a little bit more time, that have been successful, that feel obligated to give back um, and that have been successful in whatever it is you're trying to start. You don't, you know, ask somebody for advice and they have no background on what you're asking about. So those are the mentors that I found are the most successful guys. Um, we have a lot of mentors at warrior rising that help veterans start businesses. And we found them through a number of different programs. Uh, the ones that I'm most excited about are the ones that, uh, are very, very successful billionaires that we have, um, different guys, but they pick one or two guys that they can talk with. And the mentorship that they give them, and often I sit in on these conversations, it's it's literally gold. And in, and um, and they share their network. So so anybody like that would be a good mentor. Yeah, well, the other part of that you mentioned is the self-awareness. And I think that that is such yeah. a, a, a missed opportunity for a lot of people. It's also one of the hardest things to deal with or to, to learn about and to navigate and to do it honestly. Uh, for me, yeah. it was one of the biggest learning points in my career when I got an honest assessment um, of my performance, but also kind of a 360 up and down review. And I saw some huge gaps in what I thought I was doing versus what the reality was. And I was able yeah. to look at those on paper and think, is this true or is it not? And it turns out that those things were true, right? And and here I thought I was, I was just <laughs> the best brand new sergeant in the whole department. And I was just kicking ass on a daily basis. And I realized I had this huge blind spot when it came to relationships for me specifically with superiors and um, I, I had to really evaluate that and think, Oh, that's true. And so now I'm, but now I'm aware of it and it was the biggest shift in my career to be able to acknowledge that. How do you suggest people go about developing a self-awareness program? Self-awareness is about being humble mostly. And when I played college football, you know, you would play a game, and you would go watch film. And sometimes I'd be like, dude, I, like you said, I kicked ass, man. That was awesome. And when you watch film with your coaches, they take you down a peg. And you, you're like, man, I, I thought I played a lot better than that. And then there were times when you played and you're like, dude, I cannot. I do not want to go watch film. I got my ass kicked up and down the field. That was not a good game for me. Like, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. And you go watch film and the coach you know, says some really positive things about you and you realize, oh, I guess I didn't play as bad as I thought I did. And that's life. You know, you never played as bad 
never played as well as you thought you did, nor did you play as bad as you think you did. And my coach told me that once. And that kind of allowed me to understand that I don't have all the answers. And when I went to the Special Forces Selection Course, they ran a program called the Situational Awareness Reaction Course, Reaction Exercise. And it was specifically designed for the officers. And as we went into the woods with a psychologist, we were presented with a number of, over the course of several, several hours, a number of different uh, scenarios that we might face uh, while we were overseas. And we had to negotiate. We saw ethical and moral dilemmas. You know, we had to work through racism and, and sexism and child slavery and like all these different things that were just kind of shotgun blasted at us in the face that we were not prepared for. And what they were looking for was um, the internal characteristics and values. So and decision making, situational awareness that we had as individuals that would they could cultivate into becoming um, successful Green Berets. And the whole scenario was was uh, designed so that you would fail again and again and again and again. And they wanted to see how you would react. They wanted to see if it would affect you later on and, and future decisions. They would, wanted to see if you could pick yourself back up and so forth. And at the end of this program, um, when I went and reported back to my boss, like I learned more about myself than at any other point in my life. And I thought, man, like, I wonder how my family members would do in this. I wonder how my friends would do in this. I wonder what decisions they would make in this scenario. And, and this is what I made. I, I was presented with a, a bad decision and a worse decision. And this is what I did. And it's so interesting that, it, that my mind went there, you know? And so I thought if there's somehow that we could take this exercise and provide it for corporate clients or provide it for civilians, corporate clients and professional athletes and things like that, I think we could really add some value. And so we created this program for Mission Six Zero, and this is what we do a lot with some of our, our clients. And I, I feel like if you wanted an honest self-assessment, you know, you very, you know, it doesn't happen too often where you can watch film of yourself after the fact you know, but you need to put yourself in an experiential scenario like this. You need to get somebody you know and trust to give you honest, blunt feedback. And you need to see yourself in action so you can really believe that's what's going on rather than having, you know, the, the opinion of someone who may not may or may not be skewed one way or the other on, on a sheet of paper. You need to actually see it. And then and only then can you actually believe it. And then and only then can you start to improve upon you know, the, the things that you need to, to work on. I want to transition to uh, some of the topics directly in the book, too. Um, yeah. Again, that subtitle is How U.S. Special Operations Forces Overcome Fear and Dare to Win by Getting Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. And, yeah. and that alone, long title. it's a long title, but it certainly piques interest, right? Because, I mean, overcome fear. I think for anybody, there's there's fear. We think of special forces and obviously combat being the biggest fear, uh, the selection course being being a fear. And I think, you know, for us in law enforcement, we have the same fears of, you know, going down a dark alley at night or, or rolling up on a domestic and not knowing what's going on or a, or a shot's fired or an OIS or any of those things. And we have we have a lot of the training that you talk about here about stress inoculation and, re, and repetition and uh, mental rehearsal and that sort of stuff. But. I'm curious more about 
overcoming fear in those less obvious areas of our life, you know, like we touched on it a little bit earlier, but the, the fear of, of going for selection or for us, maybe going for a promotion or going for a specialty assignment. And those are less tangible things. There's a less tangible checklist to go through, right? You can't just stress inoculate yourself into being comfortable testing for a, a specialty position and feeling like you're valuable for it. How, what would you say are some of the ways to overcome fear in those those often not thought of areas that really hang us up? Yeah, that's a great question. It depends for everybody. So a lot of, of our clients would say, Jason, I need you to motivate me. And I say, hey, I'm not going to motivate you. I can't do that. All I can do is inspire you to motivate yourself. And they ask me what that means. And I, and I say, well, look at it this way. Uh, there are a lot of military uh, kind of leaders out there that are saying things like, you know, wake up at 3.30 and, and start working out at 4 a.m. You know, for a lot of people, that's very, very, very difficult. And that's an uncomfortable thing. And if they're able to overcome that and do that, hats off to them. For other people, for me, for example, like getting up at 3.30 to wake up at 4 is, is easy. It's no big deal. It's not hard for me. It's not uncomfortable for me, especially when you go to bed at 8 p.m. Like waking up that early is not a big deal. Somebody else will say, make your bed in the morning. That's uncomfortable for you. That's how you get things started. That's going to develop discipline inside of you. Well, you know, like, although I didn't really make my bed when I was growing up, I did it every single day at West Point. You know what I mean? And so that's not hard for me. I know how to make a bed and I do it every morning. Well, somebody will say, well, take a cold shower every morning. Well, I lived in Russia for two years and every April they shut off the hot water and they turn it back on in October. So every day for months on end, we took cold showers. It's not hard for me, right? So what's hard for me or what's hard for other people might not be hard for you and vice versa. If I were to say, Garrett, let's go run a marathon, you might be like, yeah, I've run a few marathons. That's no big deal. Um, but if I were to say, let's run 112 miles, you'd be like, Jason, that's, that's, that's uncomfortable. Like, I don't know if I can do that. Well, that might be your discomfort. That might be your next challenge. Whereas other people, it's like, hey, let's let's jog a mile. That could be overwhelming for them. You know, so it all depends on on what it is for you. For example, in combat, I never found going into battle, like facing the enemy, going into a house, like I was never afraid of that. I was excited. You know, I, I was certainly I was nervous a little bit, but it was exciting. It was it was sort of enjoyable. But telling my team no, telling my team no, you can't do that, facing my soldiers and my teammates and saying, I know you all want to do this, but as a commander, as a leader, I've got to tell you no. That was really uncomfortable for me. That was really hard for me. And, and because of that, because it was easier to say yes, I, I said yes too often, more than I should have to my guys. Um, and so it, it kind of depends on the person is what I'm telling you. It depends on what's hard for you. And that's what the book Deliver Discomfort is all about. It's, it's saying, hey, identify what's hard for you and let's figure out how to overcome it together. Take that first step. Take that leap, uncomfortable leap of faith. You know, and once you do that, I promise you good things will happen. Yeah, I really like um, the idea that it's scalable. You know, so yeah. your experience, your background, your training is going to be significantly different than an 18 year old kid who's just coming out of high school and he's putting in an app with his, you know, rural sheriff's department, you know, but, but 
to each of us that's the the uncomfort level is probably within our own lives the same it's massive for him it's it there may be massive things for you it's all relative i guess is what i'm trying to say and how do you support and encourage the people below you on that chain of command to to get uncomfortable and i do that by telling them stories about put themselves in, in these uncomfortable positions and they've come out on the other end like leroy petrie for example is a guy that inspires me Medal of Honor recipient Ranger in uh, Afghanistan in combat as he's in this compound looking for a high-value target. He gets shot through both of his legs twice. You know, most people would say, I'm, I'm hit, I'm down, I can't move. Somebody come get me. I need medical attention. Leroy chose, Leroy chose to keep fighting, to keep running. He ignored, he chose to ignore the pain. Somehow, he kept going. He found himself in a trench with two of his soldiers in a firefight with some Taliban fighters. Next thing you know, a pineapple grenade is thrown into his trench. He picks it up with his right hand and throws it out. Other people would take the more comfortable choice of running away when when a grenade is thrown into your trench. He picked it up so that he could save the lives of the guys around him, deliberately putting himself in an uncomfortable position, knowing that this could kill him or seriously injure him. And it blew his arm off. And he calmly chose to put a tourniquet take a tourniquet off his body armor, put it on his right arm, what was left of it, stop the bleeding, calmly pick up his rifle with his left hand and continue to fight and then defeat the Taliban and then get his, his guys that were injured by the grenade to a helicopter to safety. When I think of Leroy, I'm like, man, if only I could be a man like that, if only I could make decisions like that in life, I could be, I could be special. You know, uh, another friend of mine, he's not in the book. He's, his name's James Lawrence. He's, his nickname is the Iron Cowboy. You know, to create a better life for his family, he decided to be an, an ultra marathon guy. He decided to be, you know, uh, a Guinness Book of World Records holder. And he went and did 50 Ironman races in 50 consecutive days in all 50 states. He's a friend of mine. He just lives down the street. And whenever I'm at the gym on the treadmill and I start to bump up my speed, you know, and I'm like, man, this is getting really tough. This is getting really uncomfortable. And I look at the clock and I've, I'm like, I've been running for 12 minutes. <laughs> like James Lawrence ran 50 Ironmans in 50 days. You know, like I can make this a little harder for myself right now. You know, like I can suck it up for another 30 minutes until I'm done with, with my cardio today. And, and I think if you can see people who have been there and done that and give you confidence that, you know what, I can do that too. You know, and I think that's what I like to, to help people to understand. I think that's fantastic. And I love the idea of being able to pull inspiration from our peer groups, you know, and, yeah. and realizing that you're surrounded by people who are remarkably talented in different ways and different from you. And that if we just take the time to, to look and pay attention to the neighbor or to our partner or to who it might be, we can gain a whole lot of inspiration and motivation to get uncomfortable in some, some facet of our life that we can get better at. You know, we all have our heroes. Yeah. And I say heroes don't get a vote. They don't, you know, my dad's my hero. Would he be on the cover of Magazine magazine? Probably not, you know, not in his <laughs> lifetime. And so like when I call some of my guys heroes, and they would never call themselves heroes, but I call them heroes because they're heroes to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and that's what we're getting at. These yeah. heroes, these people that you, you admire and you aspire to be like, 
they don't have to be perfect. You know, they just have to have something that you admire and you'd like to aspire to. I, I, I really, I really like that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that often when I'm at work and it's usually, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're just sitting around. We're probably at something where we're having to wait for forever. And I just take stock of the people in the room as we're waiting. And I realize the things they've gone through, the things they've done, the things they've accomplished. And just, it's that band of brothers moment where you realize you're just lucky to be in the room with them. Um, if people yeah. are able to do that, it's such a phenomenal experience and, and chance to be, show some gratitude, you know, in that way. I love that. That's a great, that's a great response. You, you work with a lot of sports teams, right? And so, and, and I'm yeah. curious, again, you talk about, that's another high performing organization. There's a, a huge amount of stress, different stress than what you deal with in combat, of course. Right. But, but huge amount of stress that goes into it. There's a ton of pressure on those guys. Um, and they spend a lot of time and effort on performance psychology and really maximizing the individual. And I'm, so I was curious if from your perspective, if there's things you see in these professional organizations, the baseball teams you work with, the NFL teams, what can law enforcement learn from these organizations about what they're doing right to make their, their people high performers? That's a great question. So it's, it's always a blast working with these uh, professional sports organizations. I always have a lot of fun because, you know, you follow them, you know all about them since you were a little kid, you know, and then you walk into the organization. And it, it's so interesting to me, as soon as you walk in the door and you're in the lobby, you know, I mean, you almost know immediately what kind of organization, what kind of team it is just from the atmosphere. Like you can honestly sense the dysfunction in the air in some of these organizations, you know, and you can just kind of feel your heart beating faster and you're sweating, you're stressed out a little bit just because of the way things are without having a conversation with anybody and vice versa. You walk into some organizations, you're, you're like, man, these guys have got it together. You know, they're, they're on top of the world and working with these organizations. The problem that I see over and over and over again is communication you know, it, it comes from constant turnover and change, which you see a lot of in in law enforcement and you see a lot of in the military. Like you have a new commander every sometimes every year, every couple of years, and they have their own leadership philosophies and they want to really emphasize one point or the other. And some of them are really, really good and some of them are really, really bad, you know. <clears throat> and what I've seen with these organizations, the head coach, the guy that's in charge, like if he is not a good communicator, if he can't clearly articulate his vision, his values, what he wants to accomplish, if he can't do that, then this organization is doomed to fail because he might know that internally, he might know that, but if he's not telling that to everyone and getting everyone to buy in, to understand, then the guy's going to last maybe a year, maybe he'll be there three years tops. Maybe he has enough talent on his team to, to be a five year guy, but that's it, you know? And I feel like some of the people that they bring into the organization, uh, that's the second component to the communication. You have to bring in people to the organization that communicate well with you. Um, they all are skilled and talented, all these players in, in different ways. And they all have their different values and beliefs. 
And if you get somebody that's on your same wavelength, that's vibing with you, that you can communicate with and you can teach, then he's going to be successful no matter what level his skills are. I mean, and they're all very high, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see some players that just they're kind of busts with some organizations and then they land with another organization and then they're like a Pro Bowl player. They're an all-star. And it's like, well, why couldn't that guy play well there? It's because he wasn't valued. He wasn't communicated with effectively. He didn't understand what was going on. And now that he's with a coach that understands how to do it, he's going to be successful. I think there's a lot of cops nodding their head right now about the whole communication issue. I think it's probably the number one thing you hear about, you know, is that they don't know what's going on or they don't feel like they know what's going on. And then what you just said at the very end there is absolutely right. I've seen so many guys and, and, and girls who are struggling. They, they're they not hitting their stride. They're, people are thinking they're going to fail out. They're not, they're not going to pass probation they're, or they're a slug. And then they get, they get put with just the, the right leader. And then they shine, you know, and yes. it's a whole different person. And you ha- you have to wonder, sometimes you don't have to wonder because you know who they were with, but, you know, was it was it the circumstance or the environment? It almost certainly is, or was it the person, you know? And, and any leader who sees someone who's struggling that they're in charge of, I would encourage you to look at what you're doing first before you look at what they're doing to figure out where your gaps are and where how you're leading them. Well said. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly correct. Uh, Jason, the book's Deliberate Discomfort. It's, it really is an enjoyable book. It's, it's, I enjoyed this one more than any of the most recent leadership books I've read. Uh, I think the last leadership book I really read that I enjoyed was Extreme Ownership, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And this is a sure. good, this is a really, this is, this is the next one that I really enjoyed after that. Um, and that one was years ago. And I've read many in between. So Deliberate Discomfort. Uh, tell us where we can find it, where we can find you on social media or on the web and where they can learn more about your, your company and where they can learn more about your nonprofit. Yes, sir. Thanks, Garrett. Uh, it's been awesome to be on the show, by the way. It's a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully your audience gets a lot of value in it. Um, I feel like we could, we had good chemistry. We were vibing and, and, uh, and, uh, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Uh, really fun. Really enjoyed this one. I, 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 on uh, LinkedIn, namely is where I live. Jason Van Camp is my name. That's my handle on LinkedIn. Uh, I post generally three times a week. And um, I'm on Instagram as well, but I don't do a whole lot on Instagram. It's at Jason Van Camp is my Instagram handle. I'm also on Facebook, Jason Van Camp as well. Uh, Mission Six Zero has recently partnered with a, an unbelievably successful marketing firm, and they're going to start pushing out um, Mission Six Zero content on Instagram. Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So you can find out more about us there. And our website is mission60.com. You can spell that however you like. And you can find uh, find out more about our company and what we do, what we believe in, what we offer and so forth. Let's see. Uh, if you want to buy the book, Deliver Discomfort, you go to Amazon. Um, we've sold almost 18,000 copies so far. It's the number one Amazon bestseller. If you uh, get a copy on Amazon and you like it, please leave a review. We're trying to get as many reviews as we possibly can. Hopefully they're positive reviews, but if you have a negative one, that's okay too. Uh, or you can go to veteran owned and operated nine line apparel and they're a partner of ours and you can get the book deliberate discomfort with a limited edition t-shirt, uh, and a bundle package. And they do a phenomenal job. Absolutely fantastic. Um, really happy with that. And other than that, find out about warrior rising or nonprofit, 
uh, Warrior Rising across the board, LinkedIn, Facebook, and then Instagram. It's We Are Warrior Rising. And warriorrising.org is the website. We help veterans and their immediate family members uh, in the most altruistic way we know how. We help them help themselves by starting their own businesses. And last year, we helped 1,016 veterans start their own businesses. And we raised almost a million dollars. So 82.4% 82 of every dollar we raise goes back to the veteran. And that's that's it. Hopefully that answers all the questions. It does. We'll put all the links to your social medias, your website, to Warriors Rising, uh, to Mission 6 Zero. We'll put all those in the show notes. So if people don't have access to it right now, they forget, they can go to your episode at thesquadroom.net and they will all be in there and they can just shoot a link to there. I highly encourage anyone who is is currently a leader, looking to be a leader, uh, or um, feels themselves as a leader. And the clue I always say is if you think you're a leader, you are. Uh, just start acting like it. Um, pick up this book. It's a really easy read. Uh, great war stories for the guys that like to read stories from combat. There's a lot of interesting science in there, too. And then you put it into layman terms uh, in each chapter, too, and some great discussions. Jason, thanks for your time today. Uh, really appreciate uh, having you on. Really enjoyed this discussion about how we can overcome fear and get uncomfortable. Awesome. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks for everything. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to this interview with Jason Van Camp. So how does this relate to our badges? Something we talk about on this show uh, often, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And I think that Jason has exemplified some of these areas uh, to such a degree that um, he, he's just a shining example of how when we align all these things together, we can really uh, 10x our results and we can leverage whatever environment we grew up in. We can leverage whatever our experiences are at work. We can leverage whatever age we are at the age we are at. Right. So in our, I mean, just for example, our beliefs and the belief that it's important to be able to allow for mistakes and that belief causes empathy. And if you allow for mistakes and you have empathy, then in your actions with the people around you, both above you and below you, because remember, your leaders are going to make mistakes too, your actions uh, are going to demonstrate patience. They're going to demonstrate acceptance. They're going to demonstrate, like we talked about, that an acknowledgement that people are valuable and you're going to get a lot more buy-in. The discipline to have those disciplined thoughts around mentors and uh, your confidence. Those are very important. And then in the goals, like when Jason joined the special forces, he had a very specific goal of making it into, uh, uh, sorry, when he joined the army, he had a very specific goal, uh, of joining special forces. Not when he was at West point, it was by accident, but when he saw the potential for what he could become, if he focused, that became his goal. Right, And then in controlling emotions and in identifying those emotions and, and, and opening up to them. Because, again, going back to this idea that allowing people to be valuable, um, that's an emotional connection with people. And we have to be open to those experiences. And then, of course, service and something like this. He's able to turn all these lessons around and serve others in a bigger way by being open, by believing in empathy, by showing patience. So that's how I think Jason's a great example of the relation to badges. If you want to know how to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. 
If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of the conversation, please consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. Uh, Please also, please leave a comment with your review. That helps us really jump up in the search engine uh, uh, results. And it then shares it it with much more people. Second, uh, share this episode with any other or any other episode with someone you love or that you know needs to hear what we talk about here. You can share the episodes right from our webpage at thesquadroom.net and for most and from most podcast players. If you heard something today, you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. Go to thesquadroom.net and just email this episode directly to them. And of course, join our Facebook group and follow me on Instagram on and Twitter at the Squadroom. Special thanks to our sponsors for today's episode, Signature Coins. If you're looking for a challenge coin for your agency or specialty unit, check them out at signaturecoins.com and use the coupon code the squadroom for $50 off. All right. Until next time, please, more than ever, take care of each other and stay safe.